All right, we're live now. So I'm Vishak, hello everybody. And today we have, uh, in order of tiles, we have Aisha. Hi everyone, I'm Aisha. Uh, we have Shomu from, Aisha is in Nigeria. We have Shomu in India. Hello everyone. Maya in Brooklyn in the, in the United States. Hi. So is Mike. Hi guys. Siddharth's in Paris, France. Hello. Uh, Vincent's in Manhattan, <laughs> New York. Hello, everybody. Moscow's also in India. Hello. And Obona is the other person from Nigeria on today's screen. All right, excellent. Let's get started. So. Recently, we did a user study for specifically for Galleon users, but we got some insights about uh, people's Tezos usage and how they got into Tezos. So Maya ran the user study. Uh, what was the headline as far as Tezos is concerned, Maya? Um, well, so we only asked like one question, how did you get into Tezos? And some of them had never even heard of Tezos before, um, which was interesting or they thought it was called Tesori, I don't know. Um, but I guess how people got into it was through um, friends um, or they happened upon Hen and one of their rabbit holes of like NFTs and then they're like, oh, cool, Tezos, I should get into that. Um, but yeah, does that answer your question or what? I guess were you trying to ask? <laughs> no, that, that answers my question. Okay. Yeah. So, the environmental angle was really huge. I heard yeah. a lot of artists talk about how that was a big um, selling point into why they were really um, found Tezos appealing, at least to show their art. Yeah, like clean NFTs. That's yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, uh, especially given all the NFT activity recently. Um, did you guys run into any sort of legacy Tezos users, the ones that kind of came before NFTs got so big? The OGs. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm trying to remember. So one um, guy, Billy, knew Kevin Murabi. Um, and that's how, like, he's known him since like 2008 or something. And he said, Kevin introduced him pretty early on to, um, Tezos and he's kind of running his own business out of Galleon, um, wrapping tokens and then, um, selling them to people. But I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like I, there was a couple of user studies that we did, I think even, uh, some, some for some of our projects before. And it seemed to be a lot of new people, which I actually found kind of interesting. Um, it kind of was easier to pull newer people <laughs> into pulling for these interviews. And we also sort of source, uh, we sort of screen for them anyway. We wanted to hear the perspective of someone new versus someone who's been in the ecosystem. Right. But I, I wonder how that would differ. Like, how do you guys feel about NFTs? as opposed to if you just started them now. Oh, I think NFTs 
when they started to become more popular on the platform really were very motivational use case for the platform that was otherwise uh, not really being used a whole lot. So let's see, when did this whole NFT thing really start? Like about a year ago and really it exploded in popularity, I want to say in March of this year. So prior to that, we had a couple of uh, DeFi use cases that, you know, they were popular in the context of the platform at the time, but they weren't like super popular, meaning that if you consider how many accounts are participating in um, those, uh, how many accounts were using those apps, it wasn't a huge number. Right. And then uh, with NFTs, especially with Hikatnunk, uh, we saw a huge influx of users and much uh, higher participation in general across the platform because uh, it was inexpensive. It was very experimental, very grassroots. Uh, and that was really cool. I think prior to that, a lot of the work that at least I was doing and that I had on my mind was uh, technically oriented, meaning like what features do we need to add to the tools that we're building as opposed to, well, how do we make the user experience for the applications better? And now it's driven a lot more by the second than the first, because the tools, I guess, are fine enough, right? But uh, there's a lot that can be done for UX. Yeah. And uh, that's how I look at it now. Awesome. And that's where our study comes in, Maya. <laughs> So Maya, um, you've been working professionally in Tezos now for the past few months, working on design. So what's your overall impression of uh, the Tezos seeing the ecosystem so far? Well, I mean, I don't really have anything to compare it to. I wasn't really into like Ethereum or like Bitcoin before. I mean, I used Bitcoin to like send money home um, when I lived in Korea, but I didn't really know that much about it. Um, and it's honestly, I was kind of thrown into it and it, well, the Tezos world and um, it's a lot. It was very overwhelming at first. Um, I still don't quite understand it all, even though I've been working here for three months, but um, like the people that I've talked to, like the community so far, um, I think has been really helpful and really cool. Um, and just talking to like our users in the user studies that I've been doing has been insightful. I learned more from them, I think, um, just in doing the interviews. But yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and is there a stuff like out of everything you've kind of been exposed to so far, are there specific things that you see yourself using uh, more over the coming months? As a, as a human being, not just as a sort of Tezos professional? Um, just like generally in terms of like yeah. crypto yeah. and yeah. NFTs, mm -hmm. I would definitely like to start investing. Um, I think NFTs, I've realized that there's a lot of potential. Not They're not just like digital art, um, especially with this like, metaverse that's coming i think um i kind of want to get into it and just kind of see where it goes i find it really i mean it's 
it's new technology. I mean, for the lot, for the most part, it's already here. Um, but I think it's just gonna like explode soon. I mean, Facebook is already kind of changing into the metaverse or something like that. I've been hearing. Have you guys heard about that? They've already. Oh yeah, that's definitely what we're talking about. Facebook's called Meta now, and yeah, they're really gonna focus on the metaverse. Mark Zuckerberg changed his uh, profile picture to a really famous board board yacht club NFT. Uh, generally, what do people think? I, about I think that was fake. Okay, that was fake. But, Never mind. But, but I mean, it. I wouldn't put it past them at some point in the future because, and I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. I do think this is a desperate attempt at relevance and uh, sort of a backdoor into uh, blockchains and possibly cryptocurrency for them, having failed to do it, you know, the DeFi way. I'm excited about this because I think this will be the end of the company. So good stuff. I don't know. But go like, on. They also have their Oculus VR headsets, which like, to be honest, are really popular. Like I've even tried other VR headsets and I find them to be better, but Oculus just got really popular all of a sudden because of how easy it is to use. And it was just kind of sad. Like people who are normally, you know, against Facebook's, um, values on privacy and whatever and then you just see they have like an oculus headset <laughs> like what are you doing <laughs> if i remember correctly they actually removed the facebook login requirement from oculus headsets so in some sense i think it's being good. removed i believe it's still in place and i don't have one like there's zero interaction for me in facebook in my in my life like no apps nothing right so but i i do think that from what i read rather is uh the login is still there and for what for what it's worth the htc headset's supposed to be very good so yeah it's amazing but it's just a lot of setup like it's not as convenient uh, maybe improved now though if i'm talking like years ago well they just made a new one uh, which looks much sleeker it's much smaller um but the other thing is i feel like the target market is uh, probably hardcore gamers and uh they're probably used to the complexity anyway because they build these gaming rigs themselves most likely anyway so uh mm. it's probably well received by the target market but the new one if you haven't seen it it is definitely sleek yeah i guess not everyone wants to look like a cyborg to each their own <laughs> <laughs> any other takes on facebook slash meta Well, there is a platform play to be had, right? So Facebook, um, if you look at how they went about their stablecoin, first they tried to build their own blockchain. First they did like first they did a grab, and they built a consortium, and uh, they tried to 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 devise a completely new platform. That didn't work. There was a lot of pushback, but the net result was I think they ended up launching an ERC twenty coin on the uh, ethereum blockchain so all in all that's actually pretty crypto friendly or compatible whatever you want to call it they went from embraced extinguish to uh just doing what everyone else is pretty much doing now with this meta thing i agree with navi pointed out there they are building some really cool technologies but um the the disintermediated nature of blockchains i think it It'll make, make it really hard for them to have a closed ecosystem. So they might have to whittle down their product offering yet again 
and end up with something reasonable, not because they want to, but because they're forced to. Thoughts? Sorry, what did you say? The dis disintermediation mediated nature of what? Well, you can't build, it's really hard to build a closed app on, on a blockchain, right? Like unless yeah. you make an extraordinary effort and really go out of your way to, uh, to close capabilities, which your competitors can then open up. Yeah. Yeah, so in some sense, even though I don't use Facebook, I don't, I haven't used it for a long time. I don't necessarily trust uh, any company at the scale of Facebook right now with my data, my behavior, my analytics. But uh, I, I feel I still welcome their presence because it's inevitable that their ambition kind of gets whittled down into something that's actually crypto friendly. Yeah. I think they're definitely adapting and definitely not because they want to. Uh, I seem to remember seeing a couple of headlines in the last week or so about how the changes that Apple implemented on iOS 15 with the uh, cross-app tracking has really eaten into the business of companies like Facebook, like multiple billions of dollars. So that's exciting to see. Well, sorry, to bring back to an earlier point, does metaverse imply blockchains? Like you can have a completely closed metaverse, right? Like I think we associate the two things, but you don't necessarily need to. No, I mean, Second Life, right? That's been around for ages. And I don't even think that was the first example that was even moderately popular. I just can't think of anything else top of my head right now. But Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> well, sure. But I'm thinking about something like a persistent world with uh, uh, participation by the same group of people across Dungeons sessions. and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> I remember back in the 90s, there was a really strict separation between meat space and cyberspace. And the two would be called, the two would be considered completely different worlds. And the, the ways in which we're talking about this metaverse is how people used to talk about cyberspace back in the day. So there's a, there's a really strong parallel between the two, just because this is a new technology frontier. People kind of treat it not as a continuum, but as a distinct world, right? So this, this cleave that people kind of perceive at the outset of this new sort of uh, virtual space that happened in the 90s with the web and um, with cyberspace slash meat space is now kind of, I think, happening again. Um, in this in this crypto frontier with yeah uh, with the metaverse and the uh, I, I don't know the the universe that's such a good point and what's interesting is i think when this happened in the 90s what was fascinating about it is that it had no place like there's no space to this you know cyber world um but now it's kind of the reintroduction of space into what we previously thought had no space <laughs> um so yeah, there's a lot of like physicality to it that ends up being kind of circular. I feel like it's intentional. And it is interesting for me to see the uh, developments in the metaverse space, but it also really feels like the dystopian future I'm used to thinking about you know because so what i mean by intentional here is that 
there is a way to create um, a version of your own identity separated from your physical one uh, and very intentionally create a different entity. Uh, one that, among other things, may be, let's say, richer than you are in the real world and like better off uh, in, in the virtual space than you are in physical space. And that's creepy to me. Where do, you, where do you think the intention is coming from? Like, What's intentional about that? I think, well, I think people to some extent are selling escapism. Hmm. Yeah. It's like, I'm sure I'm making myself unemployable to a number of companies <laughs> right now, starting with Meta. Escapism is a necessary but not sufficient condition, I think because there's so many motivations why people construct online persona. So it could be anywhere. So it's a sort of spectrum, like a multi-huge spectrum. One corner is people fleeing persecution or disapproval, right? So that's why you create an online persona. So it's the equivalent of someone having a blog on Tumblr and expressing their identity in a really op oppressive environment. Another extreme is, uh, people just doing business. So I was reading about how uh, the Cuban government has finally realized that a lot, that a significant chunk of their economy is actually moving over to crypto. And a place like that to do business, maybe you have to create a persona. I don't know, I'm not Cuban, but it kind of sounds like that. And then there, there's so many different motivations for creating these, these personas um, and for for the space to really take off, escapism I think is really important, but by itself it's not it's not enough, right? Like it it has to solve real world problems for real people. I feel like to some extent the examples you mentioned aren't dissimilar from what I'm talking about, especially the first one with the uh, anonymous blogging on Tumblr and like how old are you anyway. Uh, in the context of being oppressed in a physical world. So it's related to me. Yeah, it's I'm not saying that escape is always strictly bad, but it's definitely, I think the separation between the physical and the virtual space is intentional. Unless we're talking about brands, like a lot of people are like, ooh, we're gonna sell NFTs of virtual handbags. And it's like, okay. I mean, there, there's a, already a lot of consumerism and I feel like this actually also feeds into escapism because like someone may not be able to buy some fancy whatever in the real world, but uh, they can have an avatar in uh, some metaverse that does. I don't know, Mike, have you looked at the prices? I think it's much cheaper to buy a Gucci handbag than a Gucci NFT. I think we're still too early in the space for mass adoption. Uh, any other perspectives? Anyone else have a comment on Meta and the Metaverse? Okay, uh, I think we can move on. We're, we are on Twitter Spaces as well. Um, so we have, uh, speaking of sort of being relatively new in the uh, Tezo space and kind of garnering experiences. Um, Aisha has been working on some 
interesting Tezos projects for the past few months. So Aisha, can you just generally tell us about your journey, how you got started, uh, the kinds of things you've been working on and how it's felt so far? Yeah, sure. Okay, hi guys. So um, I joined Scripps a couple of months ago and since then I've been working on some couple of projects on for the Tezos blockchain. My first major introduction to the Tezos blockchain as a developer was with Tezex, which is a decentralized cross-chain bridge built on the Tezos blockchain. Uh, I helped build that, the front-end part, and it was quite challenging for me because it's that was like my first um my first my my that was my like my my first time being introduced as a developer into the blockchain space and i guess not and now that's out i'm it's there's this feeling satisfying feeling of seeing a product you helps build being used by so many users and right now on testfin we're working on testing which is like a compound like defi lending platform it's been interesting building this as well. And this lending platform enables one to supply a token and earn rewards of it. Particularly, it's been really interesting for me because as I'm building it, I'm getting um I'm getting more familiar with the Tezos blockchain and learning a whole lot from it. Yeah. Very nice. Uh what would you say your biggest challenge was when you were onboarding yourself to the Tezos blockchain? Okay, yeah. Um, my biggest challenge as well as there were just so many concepts for me to grasp because I was totally new to blockchain as a whole. Um, I haven't participated in any blockchain platform before as I so it was quite challenging for me getting to understand what everything was and how it worked. But of course there were so many materials available to help with that and I was able to Nice. Um, so uh, we're all from different parts of the world. In your part of the world, do you think what would it take for the projects that you're working on, such as Tezx or Tezfin, to be usable and useful to the people around you? Working. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I guess. Over here, it just needs um, more people to be aware of such platforms that are available for them to use to become more familiar with the Tezos blockchain in particular. So it's, it's to take um, them being aware of it and knowing like they have these options to be able to use it. So is it a question of marketing or uh, some kind of change in the way the product works? Yeah, I think a change of um, marketing. So that's actually really good news. So what you're suggesting is with slightly better marketing and a bit more focus, uh, some people in the Tezos ecosystem can actually find success uh, in, in your part of the world, right? Yeah. Okay, that's, uh, that's actually really good to hear. Um, Ugona is also in the same part of the world and uh, I, I was, does she have any input? Do you have any input, Ivana? Yeah, I actually do. Um, I wanted to comment on the 
you know what it should take for people in this part to really um use such platform uh i think m- most of us here uh can say before what you were actually uh where the most market is and um, i think most people are becoming aware on like uh, sometime in 2012 that it's came in and uh, the whole concept of uh, cryptocurrency people were like saying it's all scam and everything but i think people are getting more aware even though i can't say they are more educated so but they are they are getting uh, aware of what the, the crypto space is uh, all about and how it's come to stay and they are becoming uh, more familiar with it so i think yeah that um, it won't really be that difficult for people to adopt or adapt to it because i think that uh, people are already using it i think there yeah there are a couple of um, people that are trying to uh, initialize something like this but that is not so efficient i think that's where crypto is um economic is going to really scale up it's anything that has that uh, makes it easy for people around here be easy to use is it like the tesex she was talking about it is going to be an uh, easy to use kind of thing with a great ui because people here are really interested in what the uh, how beautiful things are so if it has uh, the ui is top notch and it's easy to use uh, it's already it's a, a google like it's something that the market is already there so yeah that's uh, that's my input cool thank you so overall uh, pretty uh positive almost bullish with just a few tweaks uh, it sounds like um you know usage can go up a lot and uh we have to mention that um nelly's been uh doing a lot of work in this space and uh she's uh the ajara wallet looks really promising and hopefully one day we can talk to her at length about that project Okay, switching track, Mike. Uh shall we talk about the new Galleon release because that did happen yesterday or in the last couple of days. Yeah. Uh I put the manual builds out. I think Friday the App Store builds went out I think today and yesterday. A lot of the stuff, well, that's what I was uh, really talking about in the first part is that uh, we're concentrating a lot more on the use cases uh, than technology now. So the new release has support for a bunch of these uh, newly popular PFP NFT projects on Tezos. Uh, the, that release had Neons in it and GoGo's. Uh, I am going to make a new small release this week I think sooner rather than later that includes support for uh the John the Discalis project that was running for 24 hours I think ending yesterday uh something like 30 35000 uh NFTs were created 
so that was interesting. Uh, and then there are more coming up. Um, you kind of have to be really engaged, I think, with the community to learn about these things because there's so many of them right now. And it's difficult to keep up. But uh, uh, yeah, we're adding support for all of these uh, into Galleon. Uh, Pixel POTUS is now in Galleon as well. Um, what else? I mean, we certainly have support for it. Uh, the generic platforms like uh, Hicket, Monk, and Calment. Um, but uh, what else was in that release? Updated uh, DeFi stuff for plenty harvesting. Uh, the next release might finally include Vortex swaps. I added the CTAS token also in the previous release. So we're just really trying to address uh, all the use cases that are user population might have with Galleon so they can have a smooth experience. So all these new tokens and NFTs that we're integrating, uh, are they being added through user demand or what kind of criteria are we using to add these tokens and NFT projects? It's a combination of things. I mean, most certainly if uh, <clears throat> there's a request from users to add a particular feature or to modify the way an existing feature works or to add support like deep support for a particular dApp. So what I mean by deep support is, for example, uh, you know, most certainly Galleon works with plenty because Galleon supports the beacon network. Um, but in addition to that, uh, we have this harvest feature uh, and you can basically collect all your pending rewards from plenty with a single button click in Galleon without going to the Plenty site. So we're adding more features like that. And that's exciting because I think it improves UX for people. Like if, if I can do it from the wallet, I don't have to go to the site just to do the same thing. Uh, it's easier, it's quicker. Uh, also, I look at um, relative popularity, right? So I can, in Aranex, pull up uh, smart contract interactions for the last, let's say, six weeks and see what people are using. And then based on that, sort of prioritize uh, how these features get added. And uh, social engagement. Uh, I'm on Twitter too much, I think. So uh, a lot of these projects come up. People are excited about them. And uh, you know, if it looks reasonable to add, I add it. Awesome. Um, so what else shall we talk about? I think, sorry, just one point on adding DeFi functionality. It's interesting that whenever we consider the user experience from these things, every, like every single token or every distinct integration is so distinct from one another. Like you can't have a blanket UX for doing DeFi. You know what I mean? So I think it's an interesting for us to think through each of these things as like um, as its own puzzle of like how do you explain to users what they're doing, like what does it mean to stake something? What does it mean to do all these distinct activities all umbrellaed under DeFi? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I mean I think that's one challenge that I think we are facing and still need to solve. Speaking of design puzzles, liquidity baking. Yeah, that's kind of what I had in mind. <laughs> yeah. So is there a benefit in 
all wallets having a uniform approach or is it still something that every wallet should figure out how it fits within their specific framework? That's a good question. Um, I don't know what, what what a wallet would make it specific to its own itself, though. Yeah, I think wallets are so different that uh, it's a bit difficult to follow the same uh, design for it, right? I mean, it kind of makes sense because the functionality is so specific to liquidity banking that you want to have an experience uh, not too confusing compared to what else what everything else you are doing in the wallet, but uh, I guess it makes sense to have uh, your own touch in some way. But think, uh, yeah, go ahead. I think a lot of what you'll notice is um, like if you look on different, like an exchange that has similar functionality or a wallet, that um, typically what happens is people will add the functionality and it'll just adapt to whatever UI is there. So mm -hmm. A, like a tiny example of this is like the layout of something, right? Like if you put something, let's say they're inputs, right? If you put inputs one on top of another, it looks visually looks like top is the input, the bottom is the output, right? Like if you see on Uniswap or something, the top looks like the input and the bottom is the output. And so when you have sort of like templated UI that you, you know, you can absolutely add the functionality to whatever it is, but if you don't think about how it works, in a specific instance, it just gets really confusing, but it works. So, so it's like um, it's like two things to consider. Like, is it enough that the thing works, or do you actually just need it to to work well? I think it is a competitive advantage for a wallet to provide UX, better UX, as opposed to necessarily uniform UX, especially in the space where. I don't find a lot of uniformity in UX. I mean, at least <clears throat> between the various Tezos wallets, there certainly is the functionality is similar, but somewhat divergent, especially in the way that you interact with it. And I think uh, for us, adding deep integration for some of these projects like liquidity baking, uh, like these DeFi bits, like uh, Plenty and so on, I think is good. I think that's what makes the product stand out. Do we think that kind of differentiation and that kind of variety is going to come to uh, the NFT soon? I mean, uh, in a way, it's a bit early to tell. So you're thinking, uh, are we going to be able to do things differently depending on the type of NFT in your, in your wallet when you buy them? or? when you interact with it? Yeah, because now we're seeing NFTs encoding different behaviors, right? It's, uh, in large, on a large scale, you no longer just have NFTs, which are pointers to a single JPEG. NFTs evolve and NFTs change. They do things, um, they become interactive. So in the Tether space, like how far do we think we are from that and um, how much of a design consideration is it going to be? I think that's a good question. Um, it's, I don't know how far we are from it, but it, it feels important, especially with 
the larger discussions around NFTs that I'm hearing, like outside of our crypto bubble, um, it almost seems like there's two types of people who've like already made up their opinions about NFTs. You're either completely for it. Um, actually, no, I'd say three, like either you've been in it from the beginning, you faced the friction of having to learn what these things are and, um, you know, sort of had to take the time to learn the technology. That's one. The second type is the one that's like, oh, I can just right click this JPEG. Why do I need this? It doesn't, you know, and because it doesn't make sense, that's kind of where kind of where that that stops, that opinion stops, which is unfortunate because I think skepticism is good. And um, like even when it started picking up here, like I think we all had a healthy dose of skepticism of what this means. And then the other type is um, the people who have just gotten into it now and are sort of on this hype train um, and also don't realize that there's other cool generative things that NFTs can do. So I think if we have if we're able to support these things, um, it'll only do good into showing um, what this technology can do. And I've also noticed that like, especially when we're talking, um, there's like this implicit two ways we re refer to NFTs, one being sort of art-based and obviously referring to, you know, collecting assets. And then the other being a more technical definition. Um, where we often talk about the difference between using NFTs versus FTs or fungible tokens. So, yeah, I, I don't think that that more, um, that the more technical possibilities of NFTs is really talked about that much, but we talk about it a lot, so we should talk about it. <laughs> Very fortuitously, we're going to have a Twitter Spaces conversation about the NFT wallet of the future just this Wednesday, it's tomorrow. Yeah. All right, more then. Um, <laughs> um, Shobha, do you feel okay to talk a little bit about time locks? Yep, <clears throat> sure. So we had a conversation recently with someone from Nomadic Labs that are trying to understand time locks, which are a new feature that are gonna be available after the new upcoming Tezos protocol upgrade. So Shomu, take it away. Yep. So um, so basically in our discussion, uh, from, from the discussion, what I understood is that uh, time locks are useful in, it's not like uh, a compulsory part of the protocol anymore. It's not a compulsory part of the protocol as in like, you don't have to use time locks in your applications. It's like a optional thing. So even if you don't use time locks, you're pretty much okay. Yeah, it's fine. Um, the main use case for time locks is basically where uh, you don't want to expose um, the data before it is, you know, revealed. So, so uh, uh, the the reason why time locks were created or added as a feature is to, uh, you know, prevent minor extractable data value basically which i think it's called something different in tezos uh, i forgot it's called baker extractable value i think uh, but yeah like it's basically the same thing as uh, minor extractable value so the thing is that let's say i'm um, making a transaction on uh, an amm today like let's say keep swap or plenty right and uh, my uh, uh, my transaction will surely um, in most probability will uh, give someone an arbitrage op opportunity uh, after me, right? Like once my transaction goes through, there might be some 
difference in the exchange rate from let's say in Q1 plenty or something like that, right? So people can expect that. Uh, like let's say the miner itself uh, in this case can uh, look at the transactions that they are including in the block and let's say he notices my transaction and sees that okay once this transaction executes uh, there will be a disparity in the exchange rate so they can just put in their own transaction after that and execute it so that's one form of uh, uh, like uh, minor extractable value uh, uh, thing that might come into picture but beyond that we also have other um challenges like we can solve with minor uh, like with time locks and encryption in general uh encrypting the data on chain is that uh let's say we are doing sill bids like in auctions right so we have in general we have auctions where uh, the bids are usually visible uh, but we might be doing sealed bids where the auction value is not uh, visible at the point when we are putting in the auction itself it is disclosed after let's say uh, one hour or you know whatever specified period of time it is right so in those situations also uh, time lock is pretty useful and uh, the thing about time lock right now the situation that's there is uh, to to generate these uh, time locks right so uh, like the encrypted value and the uh, key that will decrypt the value itself uh, you need to run uh, some ocaml bindings uh, as far as i've understood like there are no javascript or you know python or any client side libraries that can generate these uh, values for you so it's it's kind of difficult right now to implement into an application, but I'm hoping that soon we'll have you know um, bindings or uh, some library that can uh, do this without having to depend on OCaml. Uh, so I think there's one bind uh, executable binary executable that is available from Rodrigo uh, from SmartPy. He has a repository that has a binary that you can run, uh, but it's still not a package. It's like a Linux binary that you can you know execute on your terminal and get a uh, encrypted data and a key that you can then use in your contracts, basically. So yeah, in, in general, I think uh, it is a pretty uh, cool idea, like uh, having such a feature available for uh, developers. It's, uh, we can you know, build pretty cool stuff with it. Uh, but currently, it's a little bit difficult uh, as of now. But soon it should be. Uh, I'm hoping that will be much better and people can use it uh, in their contracts and applications. If I may add uh, a couple of things to this. So I would absolutely like to integrate this functionality into Consage uh, to your point, to make it easier to use. Uh, the other thing is um, this functionality requires specific contract implementations, right? So uh, whereas now the validator is ordering transactions in a particular way uh, this functionality would allow the smart contract on its own to order transactions that it receives in a way that it sees fit so that's where the possible mev mitigation comes in uh, i think that the use case you described with the sealed bids makes a lot of sense it's important to uh, understand and i feel like this wasn't part of the discussion more broadly, you know, outside of this conversation is that time locks work across block boundaries, meaning that if you're submitting a time lock transaction, you necessarily have to make it executable in the future, not at the same time as you're submitting it. 
because otherwise what's the point you're providing the uh, key to unlock it immediately uh, so the idea is that if you are making for example a sealed bid on a uh, auction that ends in a day uh, this makes a lot of sense uh, the other thing as far as mitigating mine extractive value specifically in the context of AMMs I'm not sure it'll work. Uh, looking at the type of activity we're seeing on Tezos right now and on blockchains in general, really, uh, there are lots of arbitrage bots running around, lots. And uh, even if um, you're an individual user who's looking to buy, let's say, a large volume of some token, um, and you want to make sure that you get the price that you want, using a time like here is kind of weird to me because you probably just want a specific price that you are happy with that's available on AMM right now, in which case you're going to submit the operation right now. Um, it will get arbitraged away immediately afterwards. So I haven't seen a lot of, I'm sorry, I haven't seen any front running transactions on Tesla so far, but it could have to do with the uh, depth of the pools, meaning that uh, there's not a lot of arbitrage available in general, which is why we don't see them. Uh, but yes, uh, for the auctions, I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be really cool. It'll it'll actually streamline the user experience as well. Yeah, my impression is time locks help with some aspects of MEV, but they're not going to completely remove the concept of MEV. And uh, a lot of MEV on Ethereum comes from uh, sort of active collusion between the miners, right? So they're basically running, there's a parallel world where transactions are kind of settled, not in ETH, but in dollars and um, euros. And while that hasn't come to Tether so far, it's quite possible that it shall, right? Like the financial motivations, definitely there. So I think time locks might help in certain circumstances to to prevent that kind of collusion and uh, front running. As far as I'm aware, no one's uh, running an equivalent of flash bots on Tezos yet, but it's probably only a matter of time. And uh, hopefully time locks help with that. Okay, so we spoke about a lot of things today. So I think we can call it a day. Everybody, let's say goodbye to our listeners slash viewers. Bye bye. Goodbye. Bye. 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 bye.